morning. Welcome to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, I have a returning guest, someone we had on uh, a couple times now, but the first time she was on with two other people, the second time she was on by herself. Today, she's doing me a huge favor by filling in uh, for basically someone who canceled out on me at the last second. She is a paralegal. She is an advocate for better prison conditions, also a very strong advocate for reducing long-term sentences for nonviolent criminals. And you might remember who her biggest case was. That was her husband, Christopher Boyce, also known as the Falcon, from the Falcon and the Snowman book and movie. And welcome, Kate. I appreciate you coming on. Good morning, John. Ah, thank you so much. What is the weather like out in the Oregon area? It is lovely. Is it? Are you guys uh, getting some decent weather there for the for the holiday weekend? We are. Um, for some reason, it, it started to rain yesterday. It went from being about 78 degrees, dropping down quickly to about 63, and then the skies opened up, and, <laughs> eh, you know, it'll be better today. Well, you know, here we go. You and I have talked about this before. And uh, we talk about prison conditions and so on and so forth. But first, I want to jump into something else. Some good news I heard uh, that you, Chris, and Vince, uh, the writers of uh, American Sons, got a tremendous review by Robert Lindsay, who wrote The Falcon and the Snowman. And I did was able to find a, a copy of it. And it was very, very good. And I like how he said he was basically very surprised that this book was ever written. I guess in his mind, after The Falcon and the Snowman, that was it. Chris's life was going to be what it was. And obviously you turned that around and all of you guys made something big happen out of it. But but that had to make you, feel, make you guys feel very good to well, see I a think, review like that. Yeah, I think everybody wants to think they may have had the final word on it. But um, and, and Mr. Lindsay is a very, very lovely man. And I think that he did a good job for Chris. Uh, in the beginning, and they were very good friends. And mm. I, I think that um, I think that Lindsay, particularly during the writing of the Falcon and the Snowman, really considered Chris to be his friend, and Chris considered Bob to be his mentor. So they they struck a really really great relationship after Chris was recaptured, and during the writing of uh, Flight of the Falcon, Lindsay's second book that friendship drifted apart, I, I believe, primarily based on that book. You know, I haven't read that book, and um, I, it was out there, and it was on my list to get when I was doing research for our earlier interview back last fall on the new book, American Sons, but I stayed away from it. I didn't want to be tainted by it in my thoughts because I knew that this new book, uh, by you, Chris, and Vince, was going to go very deep in the details of Chris's escape and being on the run. And I didn't want that to conflict. And then reading uh, Mr. Lindsay's review, obviously a lot of things he thought he knew, he really didn't. And he was right. very honest in that in the review. Well, and, you know, I'm going to use my, my best Jewish princess <laughs> when I give my review of Flight of the Falcon. Meh. <laughs> you know, it didn't. Uh, it, unfortunately, it, it didn't amount to the the thunderstorm that uh, Falcon and the Snowman had produced, and a lot of it was based on because Chris refused to do interviews. Was based on interviews with people who had been on the scene at that time, who may or may not have really known anything. <laughs> so. Well, you know, let me ask you though, Kate. Why do you think? The original book, The Falcon and the Snowman, and then the movie, grabbed the American attention the way it did. Oh, I think it's really actually pretty easy to understand. I thought about it in the beginning, but when I really looked at what it was, which, I mean, when was the last time you had two kids in their 20s doing something like this? The only other person, and I think I may have brought this out one time before, the only other person that ever made it in and out of the um, Russian embassy in Mexico City without being detected was Lee Harvey Oswald. Good so, point. And it's not like Andrew Dalton Lee is the kind of guy who just sort of blends in with the crowd <laughs> and nobody's going to notice. I just had a good, good conversation about him this morning at breakfast with my wife. Oh, did yes, you? Yes, and that was what we talked about, him blending in basically is an impossibility. Right, yeah, it's hard to do that when you're 5'3". <laughs> <laughs> 
and and you have an ego that's ten foot seven, which so is amazing unto large. itself. Which is amazing unto itself that his ego is that big. But you know, going back to that time period, now I was I, I was a kid. I think I was ten, uh, maybe nine, when all this went down. But I was thinking about this at the time. This is really a battle between two generations at that moment. You have the baby boom generation seeing what the world is for, uh, Vietnam, the collapse of Saigon, uh, all the problems this country's having, and then you have still what would be considered the old establishment at that time, which would have been the World War II generation. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me, after re-watching the movie again back in the fall, doing the interview with you guys, that this punishment came more out of embarrassment because the system itself was embarrassed. I think a lot of that is correct. I think, unfortunately, for Dalton, um, and and my heart really went out to him because I I felt that a lot of his punishment was based on prior, <clears throat> excuse me, on his prior crimes, which had nothing to do with this crime. But because of the drug crimes, no matter how big or how small they were, I think that the judge who has since passed away, Robert Kelleher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that Kelleher saw Dalton as a true threat to society, and it went just beyond the espionage. Whereas if you really look at it for what it was, you had one kid, Chris, with ideals, and that's what caused him to do this. And those, to me, um, those to me are the conspirators and always the more guilty of the parties. You know, you, know, you make a good point there, and there was something in... in I really should be asking Chris this question, but I figure you're his wife, so you probably got the answer to me. Because I didn't think of asking it back when we did the interview in October. And my question is, because it's been very well documented, Chris's intellect, Mm -hmm. uh, his kindness, everything about him doesn't say traitor to his country, doesn't say bad person. You know know what I'm saying? None of this. highly conservative. Exactly. Interesting thing, yeah. Exactly. It's amazing. And I wonder sometimes, and it hit me really today, if Chris could have gotten away with what he had done and then would have been able to blend into the woodwork and no one would have ever known if he had not worked with Dalton. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts? I think that he probably would have gone off and he would have um, finished college and he would have become a history teacher at high school. And he would have gotten married, and he probably would have had ten kids. <laughs> I have absolutely no doubt about that. Um, and I think that he would have lived with such a level of guilt that I don't know that he would have ever recovered from it. So he's one of those people that he has ideals that he truly lives by, and he suffers from severe guilt if he walks off the path. Absolutely. Yeah, I can relate to that. It's very painful. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it stays with you 24-7, even when you're trying to sleep. just doesn't work. And we'll kind of fi- you know, kind of finish this up, because I do want to get in- into what I had you on, you know, what I have you on for today to talk more about the prison system and, and other things related. But I do understand that um, the three of you, you, Vince, and Chris, have picked up a new agent. We have. And that's going very well, and that there is talk of possibly doing a second movie based on the, on the new book. There absolutely is, and uh, there is a young man right now who is a screenwriter, and I'll give him a little plug. Alexander Poe has uh, a movie out, which I believe people can view on Amazon um, and, and probably iTunes as well. It's called Ex-Girlfriends, and it stars Jennifer Carpenter, from the Dexter series. Ah. And it's, well, I'm not into the 20-something angst. There's a lot of 20-something angst and love gone wrong and and things like that. But I watched the movie, despite the fact that it wasn't my kind of movie. And I found myself just, it, it was a chuckle that... It's not a laugh-out-loud thing. It's a very thoughtful, it's a thinking person's movie. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed him, and I enjoyed his writing, and I enjoyed the way he works. 
his um, his grandfather, and he never tells anybody this, his grandfather was also a screenwriter, and he wrote um, a screenplay for Around the World in 80 Days, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Lilies of the Field, and some, some other Hollywood royalty movies. So... Alexander's a great guy, and he's working steadily and working through us with uh, interviews and information, and he'll be presenting something soon. And That's good. Our new agent is the, I guess, is the second most sought-after agency in the country, Harvey, Harvey Klinger Agency out of New York. Great. And we are very proud to be represented by Andrea Sundberg. You guys have it. It's starting to come together, to be honest with you. It's scary. I, it's very scary. I bet it is. It's it's a change, a big change from the life that you and Chris have been living since he got out of prison back in the early 2000s. I mean, it's dramatically different, and where it's heading could be put you guys on a whole different level of, you know, hopefully, lifestyle, but also back out in the public a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's sort of humorous to me because right before the phone rang and I and I grabbed you guys, mm-hmm. we were sitting out on the back patio having coffee and discussing the fact I said, you know, something about our, our bland, normal life. <laughs> <laughs> Chris just shook his head and said, there is nothing normal about our life. There never has been and there never will be. So, yeah, I guess normalcy is really not what we're striving for Yeah, anymore. but let's think about it, though. Let's go back to the both of you guys, your personalities. You, The two of you, even as individuals, were never meant to be, quote-unquote, normal or bland in this life. It was never in the cards for the two of you. <laughs> just just doesn't work that way. I mean, your career, what you've taken on, what Chris has done, what he's been through, and what's about to hopefully happen to the two of you and Vince uh, I'm looking forward to kind of standing on the sidelines and watching it. I think it's going to be interesting uh, to see how it goes down. And I do want to say something. On the book, American Sons, which can be found on Amazon.com. And uh, iBooks. And, and iBooks. And Noble. There you go. And it's, in, uh, it's uh, in paperback now, I do believe. It is. Excellent. I like, I find this book more intriguing than The Falcon and the Snowman because I find the escape and then being on the run very exciting to read because mm-hmm. I try to put myself in Chris's position. And I, I, if you can try to do that, if you're a reader of this book, you'll, you'll understand what I'm saying. You're putting yourself there, and you can actually feel what Chris is going through. I mean, being on the run like that, you might be free, but you're really not. Right. I mean, you're kind of, you know, people are looking for you, and at any second, things can change. So I find American Sons to be just a great read. And I just got a high sign from my uh, producer, Brent. So we're going to roll into a break, okay, Kate? Okay. And when we come back, we're going to get into the prison system reform and a few other things. Great. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. We're talking to Kate Boyce. Be back in a few moments. Grandparents, here's a chance to create memories that will last a lifetime for you and your grandchild that is both fun and educational by attending Westchester University's Grandparents University. This event is a great bonding experience as you and your grandchild experience several days of college life, including attending classes together, dining together, and even staying in a dorm together. There's even a graduation ceremony, sample from a variety of specially designed courses that will be of interest to both you and your grandchild in a variety of categories, including DNA. Linking our past, present, and future. Communicating through the internet and how to make your own newscast. WCU Grandparents University is Monday, June 23rd through Wednesday, June 25th. Spots are booking quickly, so don't wait. For more information, go to communication.wcupa.edu slash gpu or like Westchester University Grandparents University on Facebook. Some things can be a little hard to reach, but then there are some things that are well within reach, like health coverage for your kids. Mommy, I can't reach my juice. You can't reach your juice? Hold on, I'll be down. 
With Pennsylvania's Children's Health Insurance Program, your child can have checkups, prescriptions, dental, eye care, and more covered for free or low cost. So that no matter what they're reaching for... Hey, Mom, Brandon just totally wiped out on his skateboard. Chip is there for them. Chip covers uninsured kids up to age 19 who are not eligible for medical assistance. There is no waiting period to apply, so don't wait. Apply today. Visit ChipCoversPAKids.com to learn more or call us at 800-986-KIDS. Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Tom Corbett, Governor. Hi, everybody. I am Martin Yen of Yang Ken Cook. You are now listening to WCHE, 1520 AM, my favorite program. Welcome back to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Kate Boyce. We are talking about prison reform. Her background is a paralegal, going after tough cases, trying to get people out of prison on long-term sentences. For Again, now remember this, nonviolent criminals, people. We're not trying to get, or she's not trying to get out violent people, rapists, or anything like that. She's trying to get people out, like her husband, uh, Christopher Boyce, who was sentenced because of you know, espionage. So these are the kind of people that Kate's going after. And Kate, before we get into the U.S. system, mm-hmm. uh, some of the stuff we didn't get a chance to talk about in, in our first interview, who has the best prison reform system in the country, if you had to give me your opinion? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Um, I'm going to have to say it's probably Maine because they have educational uh, possibilities, they have work training, they okay. have all of that kind of stuff, unlike the states who really don't have the money to offer that. Is there a reason Maine would be different? Is it a progressive attitude that they have that's somehow ingrained in them since God knows how long they've been a state? Or is, has there been an influence over the years, again, if you had to take a guess to, the, you know, to why the system is what it is there? Well, progressive attitude, but at the same time, a lot of it revolves around money. California has an exceptionally progressive attitude, um, and and I know there's a lot of people going, oh, yeah, it's the land of fruits and nuts, Um, but they, California for for generations had job training, educational courses, they had all of that kind of stuff rooted directly towards inmates, but the problem was, as the funding started to drop off, there was nothing, and those were the first things that were cut. Yeah, they go. Yeah, they always cut the social services right from jump. They cut the you know, work with the mental health system. They cut the work with systems to help you know women, children, unemployment. Right. It, it's always the first to go. It, yeah, and the mental health system should actually be the last to go. I I will yeah. get reamed for saying this, but I would much prefer that a state cut a child's art program than a mental health program for inmates. Well, you're going to have my support on that one because when you break it down, after you, maybe the moment you first hear the statement, you you go, no, no, no. But then after you think about it for a few seconds, you go, yeah, that makes sense. Because if you're going to be... Long-term issues. Exactly. And and we're going to delve into that in a couple minutes because that's very important to this interview as, as far as I'm concerned today. But I want to go back and ask this question now. In the world... Who has the best reform system that you've been able to study a little bit and understand? Um, Sweden, the Netherlands, uh, all of those places. What separates them from the U.S.? Uh, it, it appears that they have this thing called concern. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's shocking, I know, but uh, they, they actually seem to care about what happens to their prisoners while they're in prison and what happens to their prisoners when they're released. And they have a parole system that is a little different from ours. There are they're assigned parole officers when they're released, but that parole is an actual follow-through from day one to the very end, where the officer is concerned about his charge. Interesting. So there's actually responsibility across the board. I think there's a lot of responsibility. And yes, of course, they have more money. 
or they just put more money towards this situation. I don't know. But I do know that because of things like this, the crime rate is a heck of a lot lower than it is here. I think also their system, the way they govern and how their tax system works, they're not, people would say that I guess that they're a socialistic type of state, but they're really not. Granted, they pay a lot of taxes, but they get a lot of services back. And maybe that's not the you know a bad way to be when you start breaking things down in how a society you know needs to run what it needs to function on a high level but that's a debate i guess i got to bring in somebody else at some point for but what about the us why are we so hung up on punishment i mean punishment to the point where in a lot of ways, it really is overkill, and I'm not just saying that to be funny. I'm, I'm saying it because it's real. It is, in some cases or a lot of cases, it appears to be overkill that we take the punishment too far. Your thoughts? I've always believed that um, a lot of our sentences were overkill. A sentence really needs to fit the crime and it needs to fit the criminal, and that's the important factor. You can't, you can't write down a law, give a time for it, and then say, that's it. Okay, so anybody convicted of this crime is going to do X amount of years in a prison. You have to, to vary that by looking at who the new prisoner is. You have to look at the people that you're sentencing. Um, this takes into account, and I'll, I'll just bring it up because it was it's still so egregious, when the Crime Control Act was passed by the federal government back in late 1983, it changed the sentencing structure for anybody going into the federal system. So at that point, where everybody prior to, to the passage of the Crime Control Act had parole hearings, had a, a, a lot more that, that they could do to help themselves in prison, all of a sudden you have this act that's passed, mostly because of the drug crimes that were happening mm-hmm. in the United States. Yep. And now you take a kid who's 18 years old, he's been convicted of possession of cocaine for the first time, and it doesn't matter what the amount was, and he's going to do 25 years because it's written on the books that that's now the new statute. This is the, the penalty for that violation of that statute. And then those kids don't have an advocate. They have nobody to go to a parole board for them because there is no longer a parole board for them. So we, in essence, created lifetime criminals based on some of the sentencing guidelines that we have created. It goes now to me to the to the zero tolerance policies that have been put into effect at high school levels, junior high, all the way down to elementary school. We had a case out here recently where a little boy walked up to a little girl, I think they were in first grade, and he gave her a kiss on the cheek. And that caused all kinds of problems. The teacher got fired, the kid got pulled, the school board had to get involved. Does anyone have common sense anymore? I mean I mean seriously, can we can we govern or put punishment in a place where we use common sense, Kate? I think we have become a society that is, we run two ways. There doesn't seem to be any middle ground. We're either so lax that we pay attention to nothing, or we're so overprotective that we grab what would be normal average behavior and we criminalize it. Yeah, you hit it right on the mark. And then when you do that and you don't leave those, those uh, what's the word I'm looking for, maybe guidelines or at least gray areas in which to work with, you're just condemning an individual for a lifetime of problems. The moment you do that, you have, you have identified that person as a problem and a problem for life. And I don't understand how we've gotten to this point. Uh, you know, I think I said to you the other day when we were having our conversation on the phone, everybody wants and expects a second chance for themselves. Mm-hmm. We're, we, we sell America as a second chance. You know, come here, you get a second chance. But in reality, do we really get those second chances once we get put into the system? No, I don't think we really do. I, I think in the beginning we did, John. I really do. But I think um, when you look at the recidivism rates for crimes, um, no, I don't. I don't think there's much of a second chance now. And I you don't, get out, yeah. and that's about as far as that goes. You know, and, and I'm curious about where 
that that turning point came? Was it during the '60s and '70s when there was a battle amongst you know amongst the establishment, so to speak, the World War II generation and their kids, the baby boomers? Was it the baby boomers coming up now, who over the last 25, 30 years have taken control of the country, you know, as they would have, and now they've made the system harder than what it should be? I don't know where we where we came from and how we got here. Do you have any clues? I don't think it was the baby boomers, okay. and I don't think it was the uh, I don't think it was the '60s and the '70s that did it. I think when I look at the real change in the criminal justice system in this country, I have to focus it right on the 1980s. And I think that if people remember back to the 1980s, those were the cocaine years. The war on drugs. That's what you're telling me. The war on drugs, the RICO statue, the battle that the government was throwing billions and billions of dollars into that they lost before it even began. Exactly. I mean, and I think that's where our our feelings started to change about this. So we look at the drug use, the drug culture back in that time period as being the catalyst that has set up the way we govern our laws and how we enact them to the people that, you know, that the government has control over. And what I'm trying to understand is I wonder if anyone's done a study to look at all the money that's been spent on the war, so-called war on drugs, and where that money could have gone if we weren't battling, you know, that war on drugs. Because it's a war we never had a chance of winning anyway. Right. I mean, that, that to me, that's always been a political battle, a political war to try to show the people, we're cracking down, your tax dollars are doing something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, that's how I see it. I don't... Because yeah, we're housing a lot of Colombians. <laughs> exactly. That's that's how I think they try to you know put it across there. What do you think? Well, no, actually, I'm pretty sure I know what you think. When you read about the zero tolerance policies that are being enacted now uh, to school children across the mm-hmm. country, that's that's got to make you crazy. It, it does, and, and there's a lot of things that's interesting, I um, and, and nobody expects this when I say it. There are things that I have an absolute zero-tolerance policy for. Um, smoking pot doesn't happen to be one of them. Um, possessing pot doesn't happen to be one of them. Small children carrying firearms to school does happen to be one of them. So, you know, we, we just have some issues that we need to work out, and we're a little too free in some areas and a little not free enough in other areas. Kate, I have to agree. We're going to take a break right now. We've got to do a radio check for the upcoming softball game, so Ooh. please hold on. You're listening to Life on Edim, your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Kate Boyce. We are talking about the prison system. We'll be back in a few moments. What's going on with your favorite celebrities when it comes to entertainment, fashion, beauty, fitness, and lifestyle? Well, tune in for The Bryn Project every Wednesday at 12.15 and every Saturday at 12. I'll even catch you up on childhood stars like Boy Meets World actor Will Friedle. By the time I hit 30, I stopped doing on-camera work entirely. I'm having too much fun doing the voiceover stuff. Find out the latest tour and album information from your favorite artists like pop sensation Carmen. When we were working on the album, we had so many songs recorded, some of them sounded really fun and really Carmen, and I think a lot of the stuff that inspires us is really fun. Check out tips for balancing life as a working parent from people like actress Melissa Joan Hart. It was difficult because I was missing them a lot, but now we have decided to all get together more, and so we've been traveling back and forth across the country as a unit. Also, get motivated to get healthy with experts like Good Morning America contributor Tori Johnson. So I realized that rewarding myself with food is akin to an alcoholic celebrating a month of sobriety with a beer. And you never know what some of your favorite stars might say. The last time I was in Philly, they surrounded me and they were like, we love you on MTV, you're our favorite comedian. Aww. And I was like, Aww. So you don't want to miss all the action. Check out The Bryn Project every Wednesday at 12.15 and every Saturday at 12, right here on WCAG 1520 AM. Hi, my name is Nicole Zell, and I'm the new host of Soundstage. Every Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m., we'll be featuring local musicians and upcoming artists. That's Soundstage every Thursday, 4 to 5 p.m., with me, Nicole Zell, on WCAG 1520 AM, the talk of Chester County. 
Hey, what's up? I'm Tia Mori. And I'm Tamira Mori. And you're listening to WCHEAM 1520 Radio. Back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guest is, guest is Kate Boyce. We are talking about the prison system, prison reform. We're going to get a little bit now into the mental health system and how they really are tied together. The prison system and the mental health system. You'd be amazed how many people in prison have a mental health issue going on. And Kate, you've seen this personally. I mean, could you give a percentage if you had to take a guess? Um, of the prisoners suffering from mental health issues? Yes. I can tell you what the statistic is. It's 72%. 72%. That's outrageous. Seven out of ten people coming into the prison system nationwide have some form of mental illness, identifiable mental illness in their system. Now, you've been inside the system. You've worked with the system. You've worked against the system. I (laughs) I like that. My curiosity is... Are there any other advocates? Are there uh, a, is there a network of advocates like yourself trying to work the system, or are you like one of very few and far between? Well, there's a lot of advocates working for prisoners that have um, e- extraordinary sentences. You have the ACLU. Unfortunately, with the ACLU, and and interestingly enough, I've just had. Within the past three weeks, my own little head butting with the ACLU, which surprised me, quite frankly, yeah, because me too. of who I am. Yeah. Um, I was I contacted the A um, the ACLU to discuss with them an inmate who had been kept in solitary confinement and had some pretty severe PTSD and mental issues because of it. And this is one of their big pet peeves is uh, is the solitary confinement issue. And they waited a month to respond to me, and then they finally sent me back. Um, I felt like a rejection from the publisher. Wow. <laughs> they kind of wrote me back and said, well, while this would be uh, a really great case to pursue, I'm afraid that that it would cause more publicity for the the person that was released than it would for us. You're kidding. No, I, I'm not. And I was I was flabbergasted to the point where I picked up the phone and I called the Portland office and said, are, are you people crazy? Yeah, I thought the idea was not to bring, you know, was to help a person, not right. bring publicity to who you are. Well, my goal is always, and, and unfortunately, um, sometimes who I am does kind of get caught up in that, because if, if I can use who I am to make the authorities take one step back and maybe work with me a little bit, then I'm going to use that. I would, too. I agree. You know, it's, it's kind of my little card to play. Yep. If it helps an inmate, I'm going to use that. But for the most part, I do what I do because that particular inmate is a concern to me. And, and, and not with a godlike feeling, but with a feeling that if I could give relief to just even one person to show the system how it works, then they're more likely to let me go on to the second person and the third person. Now, it's interesting. The culture you have to go up against when you get into the prison system, I mean, that is basically still a man's world. Boy, oh, yeah, that is a that is a macho world. Uh, punishment comes down swift and hard. Well, and even you the know. women that work in the system are pretty well, macho. I would assume if you're going to want that kind of work, you're going to have a high testosterone level if you're yeah. a woman to do that. But have you found any sort of allies within the system that shocked you over the years? People oh, that absolutely. you wouldn't expect? So you have seen this then? Absolutely. So Absolutely. that's a positive then. Yeah. So that yeah. helps. Well, you had, uh, you had a guest on your show a number of months ago, Danny, oh, Danny. Barron at the U.S. Marshal. Um, and, and while he did toe the law and order line, because that is who he is. He, is, he was a supervising United States Marshal. I found him to be incredibly compassionate. And in discussing um, Chris Boyce years after the incarceration, I found him to be willing ears and gave me certain bits of information that ultimately helped 
And I, I will never forget that. That was a kindness that I will never forget. Now, being Christopher Boyce's wife, has that been more of a positive in your work, or, or, or has that been looked at like, oh, God, here she comes again? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I my mean, God, is that big mouth coming? I mean, seriously, because if I saw you coming, I'd be like, oh, God, not again, please. <laughs> please, i got to get out of here. But seriously, the would God, you... <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way. Uh, that's very funny, but I, you know, and I laugh about it later, but I believe, uh, I, I go in and out of the prison here in Oregon that is up in uh, Wilsonville. Okay. And um, it's, I go to the female side of it. And I know that those people now know who I am. And I walk in, and you can just see them just not really wanting to deal with me. I, I, yeah, I, I, I guess I can understand that. But probably because, let's face it, if you work inside the system like that, I think your belief, your belief system is already defined. And it, it would be it could be a conflict in some way. And I and you're a very tall woman. You're a very imposing woman. I'm not sure I want to be. And plus, you're very intelligent. Do I want to go on those levels? I mean, physically and intellectually, she's powerful. I mean, but in a serious sense, though, uh, you know, when you keep pushing and pushing against the barrier, eventually you might break through or at least you're going to put dents in it. And that's got to upset some people. Or I'm going to end up in jail myself, and somebody's going to have to post bail. Has that happened? Uh, it did happen on one occasion, um, and I, I I won't go deeply into okay. it, but I was held in contempt of court. And I was told that if I didn't, and I quote, shut up right <laughs> that moment that he was going to take me into custody. And I said, well, uh, since that's probably a $150 fine and two hours of sitting on the park bench behind your office, um, I'm going to continue what I have to say. Very interesting. You have to respect someone who at least takes their belief system to the ultimate level. Uh, well, you know, I have a belief. And, and I again, I, I think it's sometimes very shocking to people because I'm – you know, I'm one of those people that while I'm trying to get um, reformed drug dealers or spies or whatever out of prison, I'm also the same person. And, and so right away, everybody wants to stamp bleeding heart Democrat liberal all over me. Uh, I'm not a Democrat. I'm Peace and Freedom Party. I, I am more than just liberal, but I'm the same person that believes in a mandatory one-year jail sentence for first offender drunk drivers. I, I just, you know... Prison has a place. Jail has a place. And it should be a teaching place. And it should be a place that when you've committed your crime, by going there, you know you're being punished. But at the end of it, you know you're going to have your life back. I agree. If you don't have any hope while being inside the system, you're just going to conform to what the system is. Right. That's the only way you're going to survive. Well, imagine this. Um, Imagine you are... 18, 19, 20, 21, and you have just done something phenomenally stupid. You've robbed a bank or you've sold drugs, and now you are looking at a sentence of 10 or 20 years, and you go into the system, and you're issued your clothing, and you're issued a bunk, which at this particular moment, the bunking is so overcrowded that they, um, in some prisons, particularly federal, they've taken over uh, the rec rooms and things like that and stacked bunks with 18, 20 people in one room powder because keg. of the overcrowding. Just a powder keg waiting to happen. Yeah, right? it really is. And then um, they finally disperse them out to places where they need to be. There's an outdoor area where you can play basketball or softball or you can walk around the track and, and get some exercise. The educational programs are long since gone. The job training is long since gone. So really what you have is you have a telephone call, which is going to cost your family a fortune because they're collect calls, or now they have an email system where you can send an email occasionally. But there's nothing that's keeping your mind active. There's nothing that's taking you as an 18, 19, or 20-year-old and advancing your brain level. I understand what you're saying there. It's not... You're, you're, yes, you're serving your time. You've done something wrong. That's the way it goes. But you're being beaten down even more than you need to be. You're not getting a chance to see a glimpse, at least a glimpse, of a possible good future after this is over. 
will now compound that with somebody who has some mental issues. And there we go again. They, this is the part that shocks me. And I've sounded off to you before on this in private, through email and, and through our conversation before. But here's what shocks me on this. You have a person coming into the system who has a mental illness. Here's a chance to test these people, find out who has what. And at the very least, you have identified the problem. Maybe from there, you can start to get these individuals some help. In the end, it's only going to be beneficial to society. You're saving money. You're getting people out of the system, into the world. I don't understand the problem here with trying to help people who have those issues coming in. Well, you know, according to the Department of Justice, we're not here to help. We're here to punish. I, I, and you're right, because if you, if you flip it where they'll tell you that the juvenile court system is all about help and reform, and then God help you if you get to the other side as adult, you're done with, and that's obvious. But isn't it better for society? Because in the end, most of these individuals are going to be released at some point. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. Kate, we got one more break to take, and then we're going to go into our final segment. You're listening to Life on Edit. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Kate Boyce. We are talking about the prison system reform and mental health issues inside the system. Be right back. What do I want? I want to be seen faster. I want to spend as little time in the waiting room as possible. Less waiting. More taking care of me. At Brandywine Hospital, you'll find a 30 minutes or less ER service pledge. 30 minutes or less? You can even find our average ER wait time online or with your mobile device. Don't wait when you need care fast. Turn to Brandywine Hospital. Learn more at brandywinehospital.com. These past few years have been tough on all of us. You may have even given up on your dream of owning your own home, but don't give up just yet. We're PHFA. We help people realize their dreams of owning their own home with features like competitive interest rates, down payment and closing cost assistance, and even free home ownership counseling. PHFA can make your dream of home ownership finally come true. Learn more at phfa.org or call 1-800-822-1174. I'm Brian Hudson, and we're PHFA. Welcome home. This is Brian Zwan, president of Penn Liberty Bank. Penn Liberty Bank is a locally owned and operated bank committed to supporting vital not-for-profit organizations in our community. Since 2004, Penn Liberty Bank has contributed over $2 million in charitable donations and sponsorships to hundreds of not-for-profit organizations. Let me introduce our client, Patricia Roberts, executive director and co-founder of AIM Academy, located in Conshohocken. Thank you, Brian. As you know, AIM Academy is extremely pleased with the level of service that Penn Liberty Bank provides. Your response to each request has been provided professional and timely. We have had a number of different banking and financing needs and Penn Liberty has made the process easy to implement. As a head of school for children who learn differently, I appreciate the flexibility that your partnership provides AIM Academy. Penn Liberty is the ideal community partner and takes this responsibility seriously. Thank you, Pat. To find out how Penn Liberty Bank can help you, visit us at PennLibertyBank.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Hey, I'm Sarah Chalk from How to Live with Your Parents for the Rest of Your Life and Scrubs, and you're listening to WCHE 1520. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Kate Boyce. We've been talking about prison reform system or the prison itself, uh, how to do reform, mental health issues. But before we do that, Kate, please tell us again where we can find a copy of uh, American Sons, the book that you co-wrote with your husband, uh, Christopher Boyce and Vince Font. You can find it on Amazon.com, both in an e-book and a paperback. You can find it on Barnes & Noble, um, both as an e-book and a paperback, and now on iBooks. Excellent read, and you can also find something that Vince did, uh, he took my interview, put it together on YouTube with a bunch of uh, pictures spliced in and different things concerning Chris, you, and Vince, and everybody else involved. And you can find that on YouTube. Just type in either uh, The Falcon and the Snowman, Christopher Boyce. 
John Aberly, Life Unedited, whatever you want, you'll take you right to it. And uh, I know it's been, I notice it's been getting more and more hits as the uh, weeks have gone by, Kate. I love that video, and, <laughs> and that was a real surprise from Vince, and I just, I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, I liked it, too. When he hit me up with it, I was like, yeah, why not? Go for it. It seems kind of well, neat. He didn't tell me. Oh, um, he didn't tell he you kinda, He waited till it was all finished, and then he showed it, and I was just so touched. Oh, <laughs> it's the little things. It is know? nice, though. It, it's a very nice uh, tribute to you and Chris. Well, I think the nice tribute to, to Chris and the nice tribute to Vince and to me um, and I think we would all agree on this, is the number of five-star reviews on on all of the webs, um, Amazon.com, and the kindness of people who, including some, who were not predisposed to like the book. I, you know, I think, I think what happens when you, when you read a book like that, um, you start to see the person is truly human. You only know what you know prior to other things you've read, newspaper articles, maybe previous books, whatever. This book came from the three of you, so it's coming from the sources. And I think that makes a huge difference in the end in how you're going to look at a person. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I for agree. me, I mean, for me, it did. I wasn't sure how I was going to go into reading the book, what my thoughts are going to be. The Falcon and the Snowman came out, uh, the book, in the early 80s. Uh, I didn't read that right away. I was a kid, but I did see the movie. And, you know, growing up in the Reagan, you know, as a Reagan kid, I went into the military. My thoughts were always right or wrong. You're going to be punished if you do the wrong thing. I mean, I had that belief system that has evolved over time. And it, reading the book, uh, American Sons, was just very, very eye opening to me. And uh, it's interesting to think that someone so intelligent as Chris could be almost left for dead inside the system when they put him in the solitary. I mean, they could have destroyed him. Well, that's the hard part. Um, while Chris was stronger than they were, so many young men and women aren't. And uh, there is a group called FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And in the recent months, starting in April, uh, the federal government has finally decided that maybe a lot of the families and a lot of the inmates and a lot of the supporters might be on to something. And they've started a new project called Clemency 2014, which is based initially on older prisoners, people who have been in there who are maybe geriatric, as, as my client certainly is, and the younger prisoners who have served a 10-year sentence, you have to serve a 10-year sentence, and they were drug charges from the 80s or 90s that were part of the mandatory minimums, where it was one crime that, had it been under the old laws, would not have been sentenced so strictly. So it's allowed a lot of us to move forward to do commutations or clemency for some of these people. And I think it's going to affect thousands of people. And that's a good thing, but I think we have to take it a step further. You have nonviolent criminals, and in some cases we'll say white-collar criminals, mm -hmm. coming out. They have felony convictions on their rap sheets. They can't find jobs. Right, and with right. the Internet today... You know, they might have been involved in something. Maybe they made a mistake. Maybe they got caught up in something that they got pulled in and it was it was just the way it happened and that's it. But no matter how it went down, they are convicted felons and now they're out there trying to find work. At what point do we finally forgive and forget so these people can go on? They're not violent criminals. And, again, I don't understand... You can Google someone, you find out they did this, and then you just walk away from them. Um, um, it seems like a waste of a life. Yeah, it is a waste of a life. And to, to some employer's credit, there is a list that, so if anybody out there is listening and you have a felony and you find that you can't get work because of the felony, here's a tip. If you go online and you Google, and we Google a lot, um, companies that hire felons, you're going to get a list of about 2,000 employers nationwide, some of which, and I will name, Calvin Klein Corporation, which I was very pleased to hear, um, Alaska Airlines. These people make it a point 
to to hire somebody that's been convicted of a nonviolent felony. And I, I couldn't be prouder of the fact that I'm, you know, label conscious and I wear Calvin Klein. So it, it makes me very happy. It feels like I'm contributing <laughs> to something. You know, it's it just Alaska Airline went two notches up in popularity in my book simply because they do that. But there is a list of countries or uh, companies nationwide that make it a practice to hire nonviolent felonies. And that's I a am good just thing. thrilled. I think that's a good thing. Why throw away knowledge? a human being, everything about them for no reason. And my last question, because I think we've got a couple minutes here. Okay. And this is important because I'm really curious about this, to how you became who you are. <laughs> who, it's very important to me because I find you fascinating. Who is or has been your biggest influence? My mother. How come? Um, well, actually, my mother and father equally. Uh, from the time that I was a small kid, my parents, well, they were very strict, and they did punish, um, and there was none of that wait till your dad gets home kind of nonsense. Um, they allowed me and they allowed my brothers to be the people that we are. And I grew up in a, in a very strict Marine Corps family. Hmm. My parents... My parents were different from other parents. My parents were the ones that, even in the 60s, 70s, 80s, your gay friends are always welcome here. Your African-American friends are always welcome here. You know, it's just, there was no, uh, there was no discrimination. There was none of that raised eyebrow stuff. We were very loved children. We were very supported children, and they gave us a sense that we could accomplish whatever we set out to do. That's the way it's supposed to be in most households when you're growing up. You get uh, the discipline you need, the guidance that you need. You get a good roof over your head and education, and your parents walk hand in hand with you. But if you get off the path, they smack you back on the path. Well, and if I would have gotten too far off the path, they would have put me back, but they would have been there to, to hold my hand while I was making the transition. I think, that's, I think society's moving too fast these days to slow down and take a look at a situation as a whole situation instead of just a moment in time. Right. I mean, right. that's just one of the sad points on that one. But, Kate, I appreciate you coming on today with me, and we're going to cut it out to get to the next show whatever that may be i'm not even positive but kate thank you so much and uh, again you're welcome on anytime thanks john i really I've appreciate enjoyed it. it please please tell chris and vince that i said hi and you did get my email correct i did and i'm I, answering it i appreciate that and we'll go from there okay thanks kate uh-huh